welcome to the Soccer ESQ podcast. My name is Mickey Turner. You can find me on Twitter at Turner ESQ. I write for The Athletic and Sounder at Heart, and you can find my other writings at SoccerESQ.com. While collective bargaining agreement battles rage on elsewhere, we got a rare bit of good news in the world of soccer as MLS and the MLS Players Association came to an agreement on a new collective bargaining agreement. That agreement will run through the year 2024 and ensures labor peace for the next five years. In contrast to the 2015 CBA, which many saw as the players leaving money on the table, this deal appears to be a win-win for both sides. To discuss the agreement, I called up Ty Harden from the MLS Players Association, who's Director of Player Relations. We talked about the agreement, how close they were to actually going on strike, and we also discussed how the deal will impact players moving forward. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, uh, joining me now is Ty Harden, the Director of Player Relations for the MLS Players Association, uh, former MLS player as well, and uh former resident of the uh, Oregon area, which we will not hold against him uh, too much up here. Uh, Ty, uh, thanks for uh, joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, and, you know, you should have added that I went to the U and spent four years in Seattle also. So maybe that will get some forgiveness for the growing up in Oregon piece. Yes, yes, that will that'll absolutely uh my audience will appreciate that. So uh, you're the uh, director of player relations, as uh, I said, for the uh, MLS Players Association. I guess first uh, to let people know uh, kind of uh, what your job description is and what uh, what you do for the uh, for the union. Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, you mentioned I'm a for- former player. I played in MLS for um, eight or nine years. I transitioned um, into the PA. Really what I do now and what I've done really the entire time I've, I've worked there is I interact directly with players. So anything that's sort of player facing, you know, communications between us and players goes through me or, or now through sort of my team. Um, and then on top of that, we also do quite a bit of work with former players and trying to expand sort of that piece too. Um, and so, uh, Obviously, we're uh, talking to you in part because there is a new collective bargaining agreement that was agreed to uh, a co- about a week and a half ago, and I wanted to, uh, as far as the, as far as your relationship or your role with that, how, what do you do uh, as far as trying to get the players, uh, uh, you know, updated and informed about the state of negotiations? Yeah, so you know, we're obviously a very, very player-centric organization, and I think my role and my team is at the center of that. So, you know, specifically over the last probably two years, we worked very hard as a group to just make sure you know players knew what every issue was, they were aware of all of it. We worked very extensively with the bargaining committee. You know, you probably know this, but some of your listeners probably don't. There's three bargaining committee members on every team. Those guys really honestly run the negotiation and they work closely with us and the PA staff and they also in the other direction work very closely with their teammates to make sure everybody's you know really engaged and honestly we're blessed and very fortunate that we've had a very passionate group of you know as many of is is 85 players formally on the bargaining committee and honestly significantly more that knew every detail of the deal they knew exactly what our priorities were they knew exactly where every other sort of team was and where the bargaining committee was so it made my job really fun and, and um a, a lot easier because we had a passionate you know, a very high number of passionate players and, and honestly across now all 26 teams. So that's been the majority of, of my work. You know, there's always other things in the union and there's always helping guys solve their problems and issues and 
you know, team related or not. But that's been a main focus has been the CBA, obviously, over the last really two years or even two and a half. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the negotiations themselves. Uh, were you surprised at the relative smoothness of the negotiations throughout the process? Uh, granted, and I'm sure everyone deals with this in their life, uh, negotiations are never you know 100% uh, uh, smooth. But uh, you know, uh, getting an agreement three weeks before the start of the season, I think, was a bit of a surprise uh, to everyone. So, uh, how was it from your end? Yeah, I, it was a little bit of a surprise to be able to do it um, the way that we did and be able to do it early. The entire process, I can assure you, was not smooth. <laughs> <laughs> we had our disagreements and we had our moments. Ultimately, I will give the league a lot of credit in that they handled this negotiation very differently than they had in the past. And I think, you know, we're all hopeful and we're also not naive, but we're all hopeful that it's going to be sort of a, a new start to a, a new and improved relationship sort of with the players and with the league. And, and that that process and what, what we've seen over really the last two years in this negotiation has, has pointed us in that direction for sure. So the honest answer is, yeah, I am surprised that we got it done when we did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it wasn't perfectly smooth, but but it was much it was a, a much better process than it had been in the past. Yeah, and, and um, piggybacking on Piggybacking on that, uh, you know, I read in an interview Brad Stuver, uh, I think he's the NYCFC uh, player rep, um, he did an interview with Glenn Crooks who said that a strike was still possible um, as recently as, say, mid to late January before you guys extended the uh, the current CBA for a week. Um, did you uh, were you, did you think it was serious? The strike was was still on legitimately on the table, and, and what would you say kind of turned the tide, uh, which led to the extension and then the deal? Yeah, we did. Honestly, like, I, th- I think he was being very truthful in that, you know, the deal's never done until it's done. And so even as we extended the deal, um, that was a real possibility. I would say the tide really turned a couple of days, and I'm going to get the dates wrong, but a couple of days before the CBA actually expired. And we sat down and we had, you know, two or three day meetings in person with, with the league. And we really made a hard push on both sides and said, look, we'd love to get this done before the deal actually expires. We'd never been able to do that before. Um, you could say sort of we came up short of that, but I, I think you know with the extension, maybe we reached that goal. I think somewhere along that lines, that that tide changed. But the reality is, you know, even up until the last proposals, it was there was some things on both sides that both groups, us and the league, really had to have that that you know we didn't know if we were going to get until it was ultimately done. So that was a real possibility, really, until I think the you know, the, the term sheet was signed and agreed to. Yeah. And I wanted to obviously get into the details of the, uh, of the, of the agreement, but I did want to, uh, ask you about, uh, kind of what you learned or what was different between the 2015 deal and the 2018 deal. Uh, I talked to Harry Ship back in 2018, um, about the charter flight issue. And he mentioned that you guys had started, uh, negotiating at that point, uh, for the 2020 uh, agreement. Um, was that a lesson you guys learned from the 2015 negotiations uh, as far as uh, getting this, uh, the negotiations started earlier? Yeah, it probably was. And, and, you know, this is an ever-evolving process. And, you know, you find momentum and you find times to talk. And when those talks go well, it, it leads to having, you know, continuing that conversation. So, I would say certainly we had more conversations with the league 
you know, and even before 2018, I think you said, like, we had more conversations about the CBA and priorities and just, like, what was happening in the league throughout the course of this last five years significantly more than we'd ever had before and I so I think both sides had a, had a much more genuine understanding of each other and where the priorities were and and why at a much deeper level than they had before and obviously part of that's history right you, both sides have gotten to know each other in some ways and and that leads to it but but the dialogue has just been more productive and I I, I don't have a perfect answer why that's the case but it, it has it has been over the last specifically over the last couple of years, but really over the term of the last five years. Yeah, and especially uh, talking about the 2015 deal, uh, there was a kind of a consensus in the media and the pundits out there that the Players Association left some a lot on the table, especially when the TAM came in after the deal was uh, was done. Did you guys feel that that was kind of an unfair characterization? Um, and I suppose how satisfying is it this time around to see that the reaction to the deal has been uh, a fair bit more positive? Yeah, I mean, obviously, everybody wants to look good publicly. I think, I think the piece that was missing, or part of the piece that was missing in the conversation of, of 2015, was was that some of the expectations of people were probably unrealistic, and also that just the the scope and scheme of where MLS had come from, and really where MLS players' rights had come from wasn't put in the proper sort of context because the reality is when MLS started, they took every single right away from players. And we, I say collectively players and the PA union, you know, over the last 15 or 17 years have been fighting to take those back. Some of those fights just haven't been super gratifying. And I think part of this CBA really was we got to build off of the building blocks that were built and laid the foundation from players before us and the PA before us. And this one I think is a, is a lot more satisfying, but it, it's certainly taking the work that's been done by all the players before us and built upon it. Yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned that there was, uh, I think 85 bargaining committee members. Um, uh, how has the kind of the, the structure of the, uh, of the players association evolved from say 2015 or even 2010, as far as developing um, kind of a, a process by which your guys are going to negotiate, uh, you said uh, a lot of the rank and file is now more involved in these negotiations. Uh, I assume that helped you guys get a deal this time. But I was just curious of, uh, about how kind of the evolution of the Players Association over the past say 10 yeah. years. And I could probably talk your ear off on this, and I'll, I'll try not to, but I'll try to answer it more specifically. So I think. You know, part of that is I think we've always had a player pool that's been really engaged and actually had a very high level of understanding. Um, we highlighted that, and I think we worked really hard as a staff to you know show that to make that a little bit more public, but also to to really hone in on it. I think we've done a significantly better job um, as our staff has grown. So you know, in 2015, we had a handful of staff members. You know, this time around, we're a lot closer to 20. And so our capabilities have grown as a staff significantly. And I think the other piece that, that I want to highlight, at least, is, is the work we've done with international players. So I don't think we've had a meeting in the PA that hasn't happened in English and Spanish at the same time in over two, two and a half years. And that, that made a big difference, too. And we found that 
the you know the international player pool or specifically the Spanish speaking player pool has been really highly engaged this time around, and I think that made a real difference too. And and you know our ability to be there and talk to them in their own language and um, get everyone on the same page is, is paid huge huge dividends. Absolutely, and so so let's talk a little bit about the uh, the uh, specifics of the deal uh, itself. And the, and one of the most surprising components for me, I would say, uh, was the uh, huge gains on the free agency front, uh, going from twenty eight uh, years of age and eight years of required service to twenty four and five. Seemed like a pretty massive win. I was you know pegging it somewhere around twenty six and six being a good get. Um, so I guess walk me a little bit through the negotiation on this. And would you guys say that this was, uh, say, a top two or three priority for you guys? Yeah, it absolutely is, and I think you probably know that. Um, I don't think that's a, a super well kept secret that this is this is an absolutely top priority for us. And you know, broadly across the deal, and if, I think that was the question: is you know, what did this deal mean to us, or what were we looking for? And I think it was increasing fairness, which to us is is players having a choice, players having free agency, being able to dictate or at least have a say in where they play it was about in, in, you know improving competition and that can mean anything from clubs competing against each other but also players just being rewarded in a different way than they had in MLS for when they perform well or when their team does well they should be compensated you know better than they have been in the past in MLS and then sort of ultimately really and we tried to give I think MLS some credit but but for the MLS to continue the investment into into players, and, and we say continue because honestly they have done that, but that has to continue. It's 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 not done. It, it needed to continue. So that's how we sort of broadly looked at the deal in terms of free agency. Again, it was absolutely a, one of the top priorities on our side, and again, it was it, it sort of blends all of those things, right? Like players have more of a choice in where they play. We were really happy in that. You know, before players had been excluded based on how much money they make, we were able to eliminate that. That was a real win on our side. That just if you're 24 and five, you're going to be eligible for some form of free agency, um, and that was something that for us we were really proud of, and something that I think you know we can feel good about. Yeah, what would you say? Uh, you know, the league obviously in the past was, uh, you know, their policy was basically, we're never going to grant free agency. Um, what, you know, what is, what do you think has led to kind of their, their change in philosophy um, on that front, um, aside from your uh, dazzling negotiation skills? <laughs> yeah, you know, they built MLS in some ways around that philosophy. And so, you know, I think that speaks to your question before of like, what did we get in 2015 and how was it viewed at the time versus now if you step back and say, well, that was a building block to what we were able to achieve this time and we made real progress, you know, in the eligibility, but also, you know, the actual players who were previously excluded aren't. So I don't have a perfect answer for that. I mean, you might have to ask someone on their side, other than I think we made it very, very clear that this was an issue on our side that we had to have real improvement on. And I think they believed us. Yeah, it, it it seems like it is. It's just it seems like it's it seems like it's been a remarkable turnaround. And yeah, you know, to your point, it, it's probably a, a question better asked to them. But uh, it, it was just you know a very surprising development and welcome one, obviously uh, from your perspective. Um, so I also wanted to ask you guys about Tam, which Bob Foos, uh, uh, your boss, uh, has characterized as a bad word. Uh, 
And there's been some modifications uh, to it, to TAM in this deal. Um, some of it's been converted to uh, general allocation money. Um, and the TAM that's left ha seems to be more accessible to the pool. Um, I know you guys essentially wanted it to be done away with and kind of just moved over to the general budget. Uh, so are you happy with where things stand and where do you see uh, potential improvements in that in the future? Yeah, so it's a good question. It's no secret that we don't love TAM. We just think that it's an overcomplicated system. It's like MLS 1.0 and it's just not necessary. Like, let the teams make the decisions based on, you know, how they want to make the decision. That's been our stance. I think we felt good on one hand that we did make a lot of progress. And if you look at sort of the percentage of, of the overall spend and how much is in TAM versus how much it was, you know, before this deal, we feel good about the progress. The reality is we, we would have loved to kill TAM, right? Um, but we felt good about, you know, honestly, we felt good about the progress and, and the practical difference now in terms of how much money or how much of a percentage of the money it was before versus what it's going to be is real progress. And what about the league's uh, kind of, you know, there's obviously the uh, the league priorities on how that money was, was spent. Uh, it was obviously mostly to go to foreign players. That's loosened up a little bit, um, you know, even before the deal with some, you know, domestic young players uh, getting access to those dollars. Um, do you think it's been the league's control has been sufficiently loosened up? And where do you kind of where would you kind of like to see the league, uh, you know, if they're not going to get rid of TAM? Um, how would you like to see those those dollars, uh, you know, even more uh, accessible to players? Yeah, so so. I think even outside of the CBA, we've seen though the access to that money in two ways um, start to broaden. And, and the first way is just naturally, you know, the teams are getting away with a little bit more in terms of doing what they want with that money than they were when it first came out. Now, that's not perfect at all. Um, the second one is in, in the new CBA, and I, this is probably a little bit in the weeds, is that the, the only parameter for TAM for free agents is that they have to make above the maximum salary. And so that, you know, if you look at the roster and budget guidelines, there are, you know, a handful of other not hard and fast rules, but sort of elements to look at when applying TAM to a player. Those won't exist for players in free agency. So the only restriction would be that you have to make above the max salary. So we felt good about that progress. And again, if you look at the total dollars in that, in the system, in the new CBA versus where we were before, we think it's progress. Look, we, you can't get everything you want in a negotiation. We all know that. We would have, you know, you always want more, but at, at the same time, I think we really did feel really good about the progress there. Yeah, and and, and another another place you guys made significant progress, though maybe didn't get everything you wanted, was uh, with charter flights. Um, it, it's gone from a uh, where you could spend four legs per year and you didn't have to use those to a mandatory eight uh, going up to 16. Um, uh, Bob had lamented that this was a part of the negotiations at all previously, but uh, how are you guys feeling about the progress you've made uh, with, with those legs, uh, you know, going up to basically cover all of the cross country flights uh, in theory um, by the end of the deal? Yeah. Again, look, it's an area that I think Bob's right in that, we didn't really feel like this necessarily should have been a, a 
a bargaining issue. I think we were disappointed in the lack of progress over the last five years from just the team or the league. The reality is teams have the ability to use, you know, four discretionary legs is the way we describe them. Not very many, and, and I would say very, very few of those actually got used over yeah. the last five years. Um, and maybe only one team or maybe no teams used all four of them. So not a lot of progress was made there. So you compare that to what's going to happen over the next five years and, and just what's set in stone in the CBA, we feel really good. You know, it's almost half of the games by the end of the deal. That's real progress. It's real progress. Yeah, and so, uh, yeah, so that, and as you said, it basically, uh, it covers all of the major flights, and, and there are some that you're not going to need to charter for, uh, you know, Seattle to say Portland is not a charter <laughs> flight in LA to LA. So uh, it seems by the end of the deal, you basically got gotten where you need to go. Is there anywhere else? Uh, what else uh, on the charter flight issue uh, could you see happening in the future, if anything? You know, it's a good question. And, and the re- I think the real answer is we're actually better aligned here with the league and it may not have came out that way in, in the negotiation or, or felt that way in the negotiation. The reality is we're both aligned. Like we think that, you know, every game should be chartered in MLS and now can we make an exception for Portland and like, are they going to drive? And sure. But I think, you know, both sides actually agree that that's like the ultimate target. It's a, it's a, it's a question of how and when do we get there? It's also, you know, to give the league credit, it's a lot of money. It's very expensive. And so, you know, that, obviously came into play as well yeah yeah and and all my conversations i everyone pretty much acknowledges it's a it's a it's a very uh, large expense um on the uh, on the budget and so it's not surprising that the league has been a bit reluctant in the past yeah. to really invest we tried, there we tried really hard to take a practical approach and say like let's let's solve the problems that really need to be solved at least first let's start with those and so we're hopeful that that's what's going to happen over the cba with you know where the charter legs get to yeah absolutely and so uh let's uh move on to kind of the player investment there's been some obviously uh, major improvements um in min- minimum salaries uh bonuses um but the salary budget increased i would say is is relatively modest uh year over year um was it a decision uh, that the uh, the players association made to kind of you know flatten that increase to get gains elsewhere, or do you see it as as the do you see those gains as you know, you know significant on the budget side? Yeah, I mean, I think we do, and and when we talk about when we talk about the spend in the CBA, I think we do look at the whole picture. You can't you can't pick and choose one line item and say you know this represents the spending the reality is the cba is going to i think it's going to be well over 1.9 billion dollars of spend from the league and, and it's actually probably going to exceed that number and so i have a hard time characterizing that number as like not a pretty impressive <laughs> <laughs> growth um you know you do have to pick and cho- choose priorities and where are the dollars that are most important and what do we think the league is going to do if, if or when they increase their revenues and where are they going to put that money and where are they not? That was a part of the calculus for sure. And then the other piece was, you know, was a balance of, of growing that, that whole, you know, that whole pot and then where does it fall? And, and then, and part of that, I think, is what we call the sort of unrestricted money, right? So the, the money that sort of wasn't TAM, how is that money growing? Um, and what does that look like? So it wasn't, 
any one single line item, we had our eye obviously on all of it. And I think across the board, looking at it sort of globally, like we felt really good about the growth and what that's going to mean for every MLS player. Yeah, and I would say one of the uh, kind of talking points out of the deal, um, one of maybe the restrictions, or at least potential restrictions, is on the third DP. Uh, my colleague Sam Stage got the athletic uh, report on that, and then it was confirmed that at least the league has the option of limiting the spin on the third DP slot, depending on age and some other things. Uh, when I asked Bob about it, he mentioned that the league indicated that was a very important uh you know, get or ask for them. Um, so I'm curious what the players thought of that potential restriction. Are they okay with it? You know, I suppose it is, it does only affect potentially 30 players, as it were, if they're over the age uh, age restriction. But I was just kind of curious what the players thought of that. Um, you know, that ask from the league. Yeah, and 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 just to clarify one thing, the I think the 30 is the potential impact, the number yeah. of guys in the third DP slot today that would be impacted if that rule does change is, is a is a few guys. You know, we never we had we had proposals on a different sort of mechanism that instead of what we what we feel like has happened in the past is that the lowest performing teams in MLS have sort of dragged down the top performing teams and to us we view that we view this as that's exactly what this should be and what we said to the league is why don't you find another way to allow the the, the top performing teams or the teams that want to spend in a certain way to do that and find another way to give an advantage to you know the teams that don't want to do that or, or, or expand instead of restrict expand how the money can be spent and you can see the cba we didn't get that provision um but that's how we think about it and that's that's our reaction to it obviously time will tell if they they you know, take their ability to do that or not. Um, but it's a tricky one because, you know, we love uncapped spots. We love the DPs. There's no, we have no problem with that. At the same time, are there other ways? We wish there was other ways that teams could spend the money also if they chose to. And so it's, it's almost more the central dictation of MLS of like there's one recipe in MLS of how you spend the money and that's how it's going to be and we think that that should have been more broadened and, and this is a restriction on that so it's a complicated answer yeah and you know I, you, I suppose I understand the perspective of the you know lower quote-unquote lower, lower spending teams but it seems like it's just a limitation that is is unnecessary at this point and as you say there's other ways to uh to it will have the parody that uh, MLS seems <laughs> seems to like so much. Um, yeah, so uh, just a couple more, and then um, I'll, I'll let you go. Uh, one of my kind of annoyances is has been over the ways that MLS kind of controls player movement at the margins, talking about like the waiver and re-entry drafts, and you know, I guess to a lesser extent, the allocation order. Um, not many details have come out about how that's going to work in this new CBA. So I'm curious if there's anything you can share about how those things uh, may work in the future. Are they going to finally get rid of the waiver and re-entry drafts? Uh, uh, what, what can you tell us uh, about what those things are going to look like uh, going forward? Yeah, um, so I think we can get you more like hard details would be my first answer. Broadly, those things aren't going away. They're still going to be there. Um, they've both been... Ex- expanded in some way and i mean that only in that more guys are covered by those things and so that you know as the free agency threshold came down um 
terms of eligibility, those other things did too. So sort of between those mechanisms and free agency, you know, more of the player pool is covered. And that's actually, I get the view of those things and they're not perfect, but they do give players sort of, you know, some ability to change teams or some leverage or some really honestly protection um, that, you know, isn't perfect, but it is something. Yeah, I mean, I just my, my philosophy on that has been if the play, if the team is declining the option, then the player should be able to go where they want. Uh, yeah. And if, but for some, and especially since we're not talking about necessarily high profile players, uh, but I you know I guess that is what it is. All right, so last question um, on the revenue sharing on the future media rights. Uh, that seems like obviously a, a big win, uh, though that is premised on getting an approved deal. Uh, how big a deal is that potentially for the? Uh, you know, for increased player investment um, in the in MLS budgets. You know, it is, and, it, and I think it, you know, I think both sides, us and MLS, are hopeful that it's a it's a it's a point. You know, it's pointing towards like more collaboration and a, and a call it a partnership or don't call it a partnership, but just a more closely working together and aligning our interests. So I think both sides felt really good about that aspect of it. The other reality is, it was difficult. That, that became a difficult issue because, you know, obviously the TV deal was set to expire sort of in the middle of this CBA, and that, that, that created a problem in the negotiation, and this was, I think, a, a, a pretty good solution that, that worked well for both sides. All right, great. Well, I have a ton of more questions I could ask you, but uh, I will let you go. Uh, I want to uh, thank uh, Ty, Ty Harden from the MLS Players Association for giving me about uh, 30 minutes of his time to kind of go through the uh, MLS uh, and the Players Association agreeing on a new deal. Thanks, Ty. Thanks, Ty.